Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, but we will eventually put these on audio with David Russler Germain. Dr. Germain is back. He's an MSTP from Washington University, St. Louis. He is a Hemonk Fellow. He is a uh, card-carrying plenard. Uh, and he previously appeared to talk about a CAR-T product, which has since been licensed. Uh, Dr. Russler Germain is back, and we're going to spar it out about medical science training programs. David, it's a pleasure to see you again. Good to be here, Vinay. Uh, I think this will be a fun topic to talk about, and I think uh, <laughs> we might have each come with um, surprising viewpoints on the issue. Oh, okay. That's what I look forward to. And uh, I'm sure that everyone will agree with everything we say. <laughs> if not, they'll, they should delete my Twitter account. Right? No. Well, if they, if they don't agree with everything in this video, David, it's very simple what they need to do. You find two other people who don't agree and boom, you fact check us off this planet. You make us misleading and false. They're wrong because that's the gold standard form of adjudicating disputes. Yeah. I mean, as long as um, if one person who's in charge and has a lot of followers says, can't say that. I don't like that. And then you can't say that. I mean, it's it's very, very clear. Your free to speech for your free speech is what you uh, free to speak what I want to hear. Yeah, you're free to speak what I want to hear. Um, yeah, I guess um, we'll talk about it for just one second because uh, we were we were talking before, and um, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I think many of us recognize there's a lot of garbage on Facebook. Um, sure enough, I I thought garbage was their business model, but I don't know what I don't know what their business model. But there's a lot of garbage on it, and they're under political pressure to crack down. Um, and I don't envy that job because I, I don't know how you do it. You want to do it in a way that's transparent, that's um, that's systematic, that's fair, that has an appeals process. You, you know, you have to do it in some sort of manner like that if you're going to do it. Um, and it appears they're under pressure to do it, uh, lest they be broken up, which is actually yeah. kind of what I favor. Um, but um, but if you're going to do it, I'm pretty confident that um, that the way not to do it is um, to contract it to a third-party website that that trolls around on Twitter looking to see who's not going to like something. And I don't know how they're picking the articles to go after in the first yeah. place. Yeah, it makes no sense. It makes it makes no sense. No sense. Um, I mean, I, I have screenshot <laughs> databases of hilarious anti-vax, anti-GMO things that mm -hmm. friends and family have said in the past. And we have lengthy, fun debates with links and references within the within the thread, but I don't think my like third aunt twice removed needs to have her feed uh, cleansed by Facebook <laughs> some that, that, that zinc prevents AIDS or something like, you know, it's not worth, it's almost not worth the effort. Uh -huh. and, and if you're, you are going to put the effort forward, highly likely you do it in a wrong way. 
Yeah, that's that's my concern here. Um, but you know, I think um, you know, it's it's a tough thing, which is that um one can be a publisher, one can be a town square. And if you're a publisher, then you take responsibility for your content, like the New York Times, like the Wall Street Journal. You, yeah. you own what you print, the New, the New England Journal. And you don't have to print anything you don't want to print. You're a publisher. Um, but you're sued for defamation. You're sued for libel and slander. That, you own that as well. But if you want to be a bulletin board, if you want to be a place, a town square, um, and you start also restricting content, I think it's a very tough situation to be in. I don't know if I have the answer how they're going to solve it. But I do think that this is a ridiculous first step. I, yeah. I know that. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to play devil's advocate to my own point of view and say like, well, I did like the fact that Parler got kind of ratioed. Um, <laughs> I think, they but got that was almost out, yeah. by the support system. It wasn't like the government said, Parler, you can't have somebody saying something mean about Pelosi. It's that, you know, it's a business and they rely on other businesses to deliver their product and nobody wants to be involved in that trash. Um, right. You know, and, maybe, yeah. maybe just advertisers won't advertise on the page on your page on Facebook because they don't like that you want to liberalize behaviors after a COVID vaccine. I mean, so thus you'll make even less than zero dollars <laughs> on your chances thus far. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, Parler. First, I think Parler was it was destined to you know succumb. It it, it didn't have legs under that Parler. It wasn't it wasn't going far. Um, but um, you know, the sorts of things said on Parler were were really. Free. Crazy. Yeah. 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 Um, whether or not you should hug your grandma after a vaccine or whether or not uh, cases will be low by the end of April. I don't think it's on the same. It's probably too clean for parlor. It's too, it's too appropriate for parlor. <laughs> yeah, you would have been ratioed the other direction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> inappropriate memes after your life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but before we were talking, you made a really good analogy. Let's tie this to the MSTP. Let's talk about the MSTP. Um, the analogy you made was that, um, you know, just because one's critical of something, like I've been critical of the censoring on Facebook, and maybe we'll both be to some degree critical of the MSTP program, doesn't mean we don't agree in the goal. In the former, the goal is, um, you know, having better quality and caliber of discourse. And I think in the MSTP case, the case is training really thoughtful physician scientists as cheaply and efficiently as possible. We agree yeah. on that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, the be uh, it, it, an apt analogy is your efforts to improve cancer drug development. I mean, you are not complaining about things, and I think you're complaining rightly, such that with the end goal in mind of not letting cancer patients receive active treatments, you're actually, flipped. it's the opposite. You want patients to receive the most efficacious, most right. cost-effective therapies, and maybe we're deviating from that goal. And I think that's very parallel to how we discuss educational structures in medical school, medical training, and scientific training, because, you know, being critical of one way that we do something, even subtly critical, um, can easily be taken as an attempt to undermine the process. And also it can be taken as, as a very personal criticism of the person who made that choice and saying, because it, it can be interpreted as you shouldn't have done this with your life and you shouldn't have made this eight year sacrifice to do MD PhD. And that's right. not really the point. It's on a societal level. What do we think is best? I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I guess I've, uh, I've stepped in it many times in the past, you know, on Twitter a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago. And then again, three years ago, you always step in the same, 
the same potholes. Um, and, and I think it's because I didn't do a good job. And to some degree, the media doesn't allow you to go, do a good job of distinguishing the fact that I got nothing against physician scientists. I want physician scientists. If I didn't have physician scientists, how the hell am I going to get new cures? Honestly, somebody got to do that work. So I want physician scientists. At the same time, I, want, I also want a few other things. I want 20-year-old young people who are really smart in college um, to have their options open. Uh, to not feel like just because you're super smart, you ought to do the most training possible. Um, if someday you may not end up doing half of what you train for anyway, um, and that if governments are going to shell out half a mil um, per uh, MSTP slot, they have to have some idea what the return on investment is and what the opportunity cost is, how they might have oh, given that 500 mil elsewhere. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, I did a little bit of yeah, double checking my own historical um, knowledge base of the MD, PhD training schema at large, just in case your listeners only know things as far as what we're doing right now. Um, and I'll give the disclaimer that both my father and wife are MD, PhD. So I have generational and cross gender comparisons to make both from the anecdotal standpoint. Um, but then you're also an MSTP, your father's MSTP, uh, your wife's MSTP. Yeah, exactly. I see. I no can't bias. avoid can't avoid them. And two brooms. <laughs> three, three peer reviewers for Facebook fact checking, all ready Done. to go. Done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the only one with an active Twitter account. Anyway, oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, too, too few followers. Yeah. You won't cut. So, it. I mean, yeah. MD PhD really became a thing yeah. in the 50s. And from my reading, it was the Western part of Kate's Western first offered that. And then in the 60s, 1964 launched the first MSTP granting schema through the NIGMS, such that NIH would give training grants to medical schools to fund this program. And so Yeshiva, NYU, and Northwestern were the first three. And then over the next five or 10 years, many other programs emerged, WashU, Penn, Harvard, et cetera, being some of the other first ones. Um, and some of them have sort of come and gone in terms of their funding since then. But by and large, right now, we have about 80 to 90 MD, PhD programs, of which around two thirds are formal MSTP programs. And so what that means is that um, the institution is getting a federal grant from NIGMS, to, a training grant to provide stipend assistance, tuition funding, um, and other uh, support, financial support for the students in that program. Um, right now we have about a thousand slots per year for MSTP students. Um, that's uh, relatively stable over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, application rates are going up. Mm -hmm. um, and on average, only about a quarter of the years of MSTP training are paid for through the, T the NIGMS training grants. I think that's actually a factor that's commonly overlooked that the NIGMS grants don't pay for even a single student's full path. Really? You need matching funds, other training grants, other research grants and uh, tuition discounts to sort of compensate that cost as well. I see. I see. So to, to bridge the gap, the university is going to say, we'll give you a deal on the MD portion um, and somebody else has got to kick up some cash. So yeah. we've got um, stipend support um, in. Okay. And maybe tell people like when you're an MSTP, what do you get? Um, yeah. What, yeah. So, um, you know, take a pre-med, you know, they're one option is to pursue medical school. Now there are um, there are myriad sort of fast tracky or combination type things you can do, but the default is to go to a four year 
medical degree, the first two years, 18 months to 24 months, largely being um, classroom experiences, basic science knowledge, and we can rail on step one ad nauseum. And then the latter two years, years three and four of medical school are your clinical clerkships, um, potentially like a small research rotation, et cetera, vacation, <laughs> interviews, et cetera. So, you know, think of it as a four-year degree by and large. Um, traditional PhDs in America right now, because they're shorter often in Europe and EU and UK, um, most PhDs range between five to seven years in the biomedical sciences. Um, and most students, by and large, don't have to provide their own funding for it. They're not paying out of pocket for that degree, and they're getting a stipend using round numbers, roughly around 30K a year as like living expenses during that PhD. Those fat uh, cats. Yeah, those fat cats. And that's taxable, thanks to Reagan, actually. Oh, it's taxable? Yeah, oh. yeah they changed it. <laughs> Reagan increased the taxes on people making right. 30K in the 80s. Anyway, um, it'll, it'll, so then, all trickle, it'll all trickle down to me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then the... Um, you know, the first year or two of most PhD training programs involves a good bit of coursework. So as does the first years of medical school. And so when you do an MD PhD program, you take a few fewer MD courses, like you might not take the same biochem class, but instead you'll take the PhD level biochem class, genetics or something swapped out as well, depending on what degree you're getting, such that usually between your second and third year of med school, you take a three to five year, sometimes six year gap to do a PhD in usually the basic sciences. You by and large, you know, there's a rare economics, anthropology, philosophy PhD that gets accomplished. And I know some people that have done those and, and that they're, I, I love those folks. Um, but the, the, the safe assumption is that the pe people are getting immunology, genetics, biochemistry, et cetera, um, PhD degrees there. And so then you defend your thesis and you have some struggle getting your timing right from defending your PhD thesis to go back into the clinical clerkships. Mm -hmm. So you haven't thought about medicine or seen a patient in five plus four plus years. And then you finish your med school and then you apply to residency yeah. with all of your classmates. And that has its own can of worms. Yeah. So um, that, that first year back into the MD life, that's a rough year because you go from being uh, high on the totem pole of lab workers yeah. um, and, and a very consummate expert in your little sub-discipline to being in the lowest rung in the hospital. And, uh, and uh, uh, the expression is correct. Things go downhill and, uh, and being a trainee. And I, I feel like there's, that's, that's, uh, that takes some getting used to. What do you, yeah, you've I mean, lived I, it. Yeah, yeah. We do yeah. not have a very aggressive part in the language pimping culture at WashU where I went to MD PhD, but I distinctly remember being asked by my pediatric senior resident in front of a patient's family one week after coming back from lab, what are the, what is the third most likely bacteria to cause neonatal meningitis? Boom. Number three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I was, I think I missed the fact that listeria was in the top three, for instance. Um, <laughs> the third most likely. Yeah. Wow. So things that my PhD on AML and genetics and DNA methylation uh -huh. did not help uh -huh. me remember. And yeah. You want to ask it in front of the patient so they know whether or not you're qualified to come back in the yeah. room later. Yeah, no, that uh, sends a message. That sends the right message. I see. <laughs> no, and we do not have a heavy 
an aggressive culture of that here. So that's even mild compared to what happens. Yeah, I've, but, I've, I've, I, I went to a place that had an aggressive culture of asking you questions uh, and telling you what the answers were. Um, and uh, and I, 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 I note that, uh, that it's not always done kindly. Um, and I do think, but I do think some people genuinely believe that one lesson like that, and you're going to hit the book super hard. I mean, I think, I think some people do it, do believe that it motivates yeah. others. Yeah. Yeah. No, they warn us that, you know, you have a high likelihood of failing your first shelf exam of your, the clerkship you go back to such wow. that if you want to go into surgery or medicine or neurology, don't do it first do that rotation first, do not go back to that one first. And that's fair. I mean, I think you're just so out of practice of studying from for a standardized test uh -huh. clumsy in the hospital um your bedside manner is garbage um uh -huh. Uh -huh. it's hard so that's but why you did peds huh you didn't want to do peds <laughs> the one thing that we didn't discuss is, is 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 what does the money of this look like yes right let's talk so, about that you know My favorite topic the average med school tuition i mean i haven't even looked in the last few years because it's well over 50 grand yeah, a year crazy. in a private medical school and it's still a five-figure number at public medical schools annually the perk of going to md phd outside of all of the professional and intellectual perks is that you don't pay a dime for it so i went to wash md phd private medical school um for every I, I took eight years to get my two degrees roughly using again round numbers i did not pay a dollar towards the 50k 50k a year tuition for those four years of medical training plus for the medical years and the graduate school years i received a roughly thirty thousand dollars a year stipend so i so it's, it's debt free eight year training debt free that thought process of the trade-off of should I do the PhD to save the money and advance my career in some way, shape, or form is a very strange thing to put on the shoulders of a 21-year-old senior pre-med in college. Right, I think right. it's, um, I mean, I was in the, this position at Stanford as an undergrad, and I think I had a lot of peers do MD PhD, but it's a, it's a weird thing to make somebody think about at that stage. I mean, mature or immature, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a lot of um, cost benefit analysis that like we're not prepared to do um, at that stage. Let me, I mean, let's say, I want to say two things. One, um, you know, if, if one were uh, thinking strictly from a numerical point of view um, uh, about your cumulative lifetime earnings, um, although you benefit during those years and don't pay anything, yeah. um, the opportunity cost of four years is probably the last four the years of your career earnings. Yeah. So it's probably some net loss there. The other point you make, I think, is the emotional point, which is, you know, you're asking a young person to commit to something that's very long and arduous, probably, you know, the one, the longest commitment you've made uh, up until that point. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's even longer than you described because there's residency fellowship post-docking if you really want to clinch yeah. the laboratory position. So yeah. you're talking about tying yourself down from 22 to uh, nearly 40. Um, yeah. 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 And so, I mean, there's sort of like a funny financial psychology about it. There is the opportunity cost of, you know, working certain types of jobs and certain types of hours during like your 20s and early 30s. Um, and then... I mean, what we haven't even touched on yet, and as I think the the discussion of you know all those things aside, what do the outcomes of that program look like? And then we can circle back to critiquing uh, critiquing all of it. So 
Right now, time to degree on average is eight and a half years. It was six and a half years in the 70s. So, I mean, PhDs are getting longer. Med school is not getting that much longer. That's the point. Um, roughly, there's about a 10% total attrition rate. So 10% of people that start an MD PhD program around the country don't finish the two degree program. Sure. Um, there's a small population of people that sort of get the first two years of med school free. I mean, this is like maybe low double digits around the country cumulatively get the free two years of med school, dabble in lab for a year, get a master's and then finish med school and only pay half, fair, half price. Boom. Um, yeah. They're called the two and screw crew. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think there are cases where that's very appropriate. Like yeah. it didn't work for them that their PI left one year into lab and they really just wanted to get back and, you know, do the medical part. But there are also people who aren't totally sold on it and they dabble in it and, reap a benefit and then go back to the alternative. I see. Um, and screw, huh? <laughs> yeah. So there were, so, um, Skip Brass, who is one of the big, uh, MSTP program directors, executive chairs of the, uh, Penn program publishes re relatively frequently sort of a historical outcomes analysis of MSTP students. And, um, their most recent one from 2017 or 2018, I believe, um, reported results that around 80% of MSDP grads have academic jobs. Yes. Academic. For university. Yeah. Yes. And then 60% of that 80% have more than 50% of their job as research. And, you know, a, 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 not the same Venn diagram, but differently. 60% of that 80% that are academic are a PI on a funded grant. Yes. Yes. And all of that, however, is somewhat time biased, right? Now, yes, people earlier in their career are less likely to have gotten their grants. But what I found really interesting was in the 2015 publication of this, um, I checked this number recently, of the cohort that graduated MSDP from 1990 to 1999, I want you to guess what percent were PIs on R01 level grants or, or bigger grants. So uh, 15 yeah, years cohort of people from that graduated from 90 to 99 mm -hmm. and are now 15 years at minimum out of their degree mm -hmm. up to 25 oh, what percent yeah. are have an R01 grant or equivalent mm, 10% exactly as it is it yeah, yeah. 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 you know so, okay okay so they're yes they're probably still considered junior like a large fraction may still be assistant professor level that's fair fewer full professors in that cohort by yeah. the 2015 mark but that's that's low that's low i mean that is low. Like the pay line for yeah. said grants not counting yeah. for attrition and any pre presumed filtering that you're accomplishing by selecting any cream de la creme of the cream of the crop right so let me let me unpack those a little bit i mean the i think david's right that there there are potential biases in this data set because it's an uncontrolled data set and one is what is the counterfactual what would have happened to these kids were they not to do this and these kids are not average kids they're superstar kids because they're so motivated they're willing to jump into this program which means they have shown some dedication and they have a cv commensurate with that and so i think that to compare them to medical students at writ large is you know always an inappropriate comparison yeah. they should be doing higher the next point you're making is the pay line which means that among all people who apply for some of these grants i thought like nci pay line is seven percent or something i mean it's, it's it not great out above 10 but still yeah. that's for yeah. a given grant not have yes. you gotten one yes ever. 
Exactly. It's not for cumulative getting and also doesn't account for ECI status where I think it's maybe double, a slightly double digits, yeah, like 5% uh, higher, but yeah, 5% higher. So, um, um, that's a good point. And you found the statistic that I had been looking for, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I mean, I, I got lucky, but I didn't know the answer because, um, the way they frame it so often is what percent of MD PhDs work at the university. And, uh, that's great. I mean, it's great to work at the university, but that doesn't mean you're doing physician scientist work. And you can be a clinician who runs trials, um, just like an MD who runs trials, but you happen to have an MD PhD. And that to me, isn't like, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful thing to do. I am, and, and, and I'm not a laboratory person, so I'm not a physician scientist by this metric. Um, but it's not really what the program sought to build. It's not what they intended. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the goal, I mean, all of this has to say like, well, you know, what is the goal of this program? Yes. And I think it's not to say that there's a existing better way to achieve that goal, but the goal in essence is to train that classic 80-20 physician scientist that right. all of us wrote about in our applications that we wanted, you know, I mean, I can tell you what I want to do. I want to be a BMT lymphoma specialist who has a day of clinic a week and, and runs an R01 funded lab for the rest of the week. And I'll do my six patient, six weeks of inpatient service, um, alongside that, which and I'll, I'd love to do it. I, uh, I, every, I, I wonder if I had to pick science or medicine, which one I would do if I only could do one. What would you uh, pick? What's the answer to that question? If I had to pick today, yes. I slightly slant clinical. I actually was PhD versus MD PhD when I was in undergrad. Yeah. And every year of med school, I've liked clinical medicine more. So if I had to pick gun to my head, clinical, I would put away the research. Yeah. But you so, could argue you could argue that it's not that it's not that much of a loss to society anyway. So <laughs> and part of it is, you know, that is that a private practice oncology job or is that an academic trialist job? So that's that's a, that's oh, a, I, for yeah. you or for me. For, for me. me Oh, for me, it's easy. Yeah. I would yeah. be in private practice if I had a choice between those two. For you, which one is it? I'd academic. Oh. I do three days of clinic a week and then trials. Three days yeah. of clinic? Then you got to pay me, man. You pay me no, that private I'm practice fine. money. Come anyway, on. So, so the question, so you you hinted at a question that I did not know the answer to until this morning because I thought we could. you might ask this. Is there a slant towards being academic regardless of what residency people went to for MSTP? What do you think the percentage of MSTPs are who did DERM? What's the percentage of them that are academic? That's a good question. I guess if, if you like my honest gut feeling would be that MSTPs are more likely to be academic irrespective yeah. of specialty. Yeah. yeah. So DERM, MSTPs who pursue DERM are 48% academic. Really? I don't know. I don't know if that's higher or lower than you think. That was higher than I thought. That's way higher than I thought. Yeah. Oh, 53%. 53. Oh, wow. Okay. Surgery bulk is 67%. That's so high. So what that tells us though, relative to the granting yeah. data yes. is that we've trained a large proportion <laughs> of people to be academically inclined, 50, 50 clinical research largely. Cause that's where that peak is in the research <laughs> time. Um, I mean, they, they are physician scientists by like, there's not another word for them. Per yes. se. They're publishing that like, yes. there's good data on that. Um, but it is different as to whether the PhD training you got is Informing even directly or yeah. indirectly applicable to what yeah. you're publishing on down the line. Yeah. Um, and then and the I other thing is they've, they've, um, they're more comfortable doing X amount of clinical labor for less dollar per X, I would yeah. put it. 
Yeah. yeah. Which is because if they switch to private practice, they'd make more money, I think, yeah. significantly yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the counter to this saying like, oh, those numbers don't sound that bad is that 24% of all MSTPs end up private practice. Pure private. Yeah. That's, that feels too high to me. I don't know what number high. it should be. It just feels too high. Um, now, <laughs> the different now in that 24 minus those like 50 to 70% other wedge, there's people that work at the FDA, people that go to biotech, people that do consulting. So there's a spectrum of, of uh, alternative career paths. Mm -hmm. um, but 20, I mean, I don't know. I think we should honestly like survey every MSTP when they come in and say like, what percentage of MSTPs should or shouldn't be private practice? Survey faculty, ask them the same question. Right. Because I, I don't know what that answer should be, but when you just add it all together, different numbers feel better or worse. And that one just doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel, I mean, I guess the reason I would articulate, I mean, the, I agree with you, it doesn't feel right. And the reason is that um, obviously everyone in life should always do in the next year what you need to do for yourself. Yeah. I mean, this is not, about one it's person. not about one person. It's not about one person. It, you should always do what you need to do. Some of us, we need to get out of this game. It's a thankless game. The grants don't come in. You just get a lot of crap on your doorstep. And you work hard, you don't get paid. I mean, that's the bottom line. You don't go paid. You don't get paid to work hard. Um, uh, and if you need to switch, you need to switch. Um, however, the intent of the program is to invest at a societal level on people so that they are doing translational work, scientific work to develop cures. That's the goal. That's the that's the the, the purpose of the program. Um, and so I think the fact that R one levels are low. The fact that private practice is higher than I would think, and um, a little bit, yeah, yeah a little if, bit. If higher. it were fifteen percent, would I be happy? Probably. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some attrition, uh, but I, I guess I'm more interested in the. I mean, I'm more interested in the question of. I guess I I, I don't want to give credit to the program if you are a lymphoma doctor who just runs Janssen trials because you know you don't need the PhD to do it. Yeah, and then, exactly. Yeah. And then the other so, thing I'd say is that I know people who have both degrees. Um, they say like, I learned things in that degree that inform my practice. And I'm, yeah. I don't doubt, I'm that's sure. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. You want to talk about that? You talk well, about so that. That's first. the point. I think every, so, you know, um, my MSTP cohort coming through my wife's MSTP cohort coming through my friends from undergrad who went elsewhere around the country. Um, you know, I have close friends who are saying, well, I want to go do neurosurgery after MSTP and that's just their passion yeah. women and that's amazing and good for them like they like you're saying this isn't about one person they should all go do what they want to do right but how many how many people when they finish mstp should be be saying i don't want to have a lab like that's another question right yes. like that's the question that's in my the mind, question yeah. now, what percentage of mstps the day they match into residency should still be saying i 100 percent hope to have a lab I'd say 80% is my that gun. That number should be 80 to 90%. Yeah, that's what I think. Okay, we're on the I same. mean, you know, if you, for the underserved, uh, you know, medical specialties, somebody really wants to do like rural primary care because that's what they got into, then I'd honestly say that's better for society than like, than, than some alternative forcing you sure. to be a PI. Like if those are your interests. But as far as, but, or, or otherwise though, I mean, the question is like, it was good for you in hindsight if you liked the program and you got it out of it, but um, it, that's what sort of, you know, coming back to the censorship point, it's worth discussing. Are we doing it right to make, to produce the most, to, to most efficiently produce people that when they match for residency, still want to have labs. Right. That's what we're asking here. Right. Um, and I've tried to think about the alternatives 
one alternative is, and I think you've proposed this in prior uh, plenary session podcasts, is what if we sh shift resources to people in fellowship such that fellowship, instead of being three years for HEMOC, is actually six because you get like paid on a somewhat generous postdoc scale. Right. You have research support. You have you can take a few biostats classes and and some basic science classes if you want. Um, and I'm going to show my true colors that I think that that's it's a hard ask. I think you may select for like the true tip of the iceberg people that can go straight MD into medicine residency into Hemonc fellowship just as an example, and then pivot and learn pipetting, mouse work, flow cytometry, etc. Like. Some people will pick that up super easily depending on their situation. I think that will yield, it will be efficient, but the, the end out the other end will be smaller. I see. Um, okay. For a few reasons. Yes. And then, and then, I mean, the other alternative, which is, I think something my friends and I have been floating, floating with is what if people did their PhD between their third and fourth year of med school? Okay. I'm Rather than doing it earlier, do it yes. later. Once yes. you've already pretty much decided what you're going to go into, because yes. part of it now is, you yes. know, if you do basic immunology research and then you find out you love neurosurgery, right. You know, then you're trying yes. to grapple with, well, yes. can I connect those dots? Well, not really. I'll just go to neurosurgery. Right. And I said, we have some actually quite prominent, like neurosurgeons at Wash U that do immunology research. And, yes. and so great. That's good for them. Like that's, that's not, again, it's not an uh, individual critique, but you know, say you've gone through third year of med school and now you know you want to do PEDS HEMOC or now you know you want to do rheumatology or now you know you want to do PEDS neuro. Um, those, then you do PhD in a related area. Um, I think those people now only being a few months away from applying to residency yes. are far yes. more likely to be willing to say, I'm 100% certain I want a lab. Yes. Um, the only downside of that people, second thing is um, when you go back for fourth year, you're going to- You have to do a real fourth year. Um, yeah, you have to do a real fourth year. A real fourth year, right? Not this yeah, fourth yeah, year right. vacation fourth year, right? Okay. No, you have to like start with like a three-month sub-I in what yes, you Yes, okay. Well, I'm, I like that. Okay. I like your, totally I like your that issue. proposal for a few reasons because also your lab work will be informed by your clinical experience that one year. Um, I know it seems ridiculous to say, but it's true that that one year really, I think the two most transformative years in the life of a clinician are third year medical school and intern year. Um, and, um, and, and to some degree, first year fellowship for us, because what we do is really different than, uh, general internal medicine. No, I mean, I distinctly remember going to a journal club in grad school amongst everyone there was pre was either straight PhD or an MD PhD pre third year of med school. So it was all trainees. And again, this is not a personal critique of anybody, but we were discussing, I believe a paper, I think it was like Jay Bradner, Mick, BRD4, like a mouse yes. model of cancer, yes. inhibiting yes. a cofactor that in, is involved in- Bromo domain, the bromo exactly. domain. And literally we, there was something, the, yeah. the crux of the figure was a Kaplan-Meier curve of mice, like N of five in each sample. <laughs> yeah. The control group died like the curve just plummeted yeah, yeah, at 20 yeah, days yeah, yeah. and then you gave them this some drug and like seven days later all the mice went kaput and that was like the ta-da p is less than 0.05 this drug is a therapeutic option so i mean I, and literally like we were all like yay hooray you cured the cancer in a mouse and i and i, I remember because i i felt i was at least a relatively clinically informed phd student at the time i, I my mentor is a straight MD, et cetera. I, I did a lot of shadowing. 
I was like, guys, every mouse died of cancer a week later. Like this isn't even like a good PFS curve. I mean, this is like, you just slow down metabolism in the mouse and they all went what a few weeks later. Yeah. So, so just that insight of like, what is a therapeutic target? What is a meaningful benefit in a patient? Um, stuff you've written at length about is stuff you learn in third year. Yes. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, yeah. In terms of thinking about what, what, how you interpret your results in lab. Honestly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's well put. And also when, when, and, and then as you start to factor in the fact that there's already a translation gap from mice to man, when the results are even bigger, now you're talking about one week later. Yeah, I, I would say that my enthusiasm is quite low. But yeah, it's a, it's an excellent point. Um, and even I mean, the point I think that I, that you're making that I really like is that you know I always people always ask me like, how do I know what to specialize in? I was like, you do not know until you round on third year on all the services and you just discover like you like or don't like some fields. Um, you know, medicine obviously clicked for both of us. Um, I have some guests. You know, I can just tell we're that kind of people. Um, um, but you know, there are things I liked a lot more than I thought I would like. I like peds more than I thought I would like it. I, um, I didn't like OB-GYN. Um, I guess I also predicted I wasn't going to like OB-GYN. Um, I liked surgery a lot more than I thought I would like it. Um, that did surprise me. I didn't think I would like it so much. Um, and you know, depending on how life had gone, you could, I could have imagined that I had done it. Um, you know, um, so yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's a good proposal. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was the first proposal of PhD in postdoc years, a fellowship, UCLA has a star program. So yeah. um, it's actually very similar to that. Yeah. I think they should exist. I, I think there are people, and I mean, the, the, the lab adjacent to the one I'm doing my postdoc work in is run by a recent straight MD who did extensive postdoctoral research and, and he's a superstar and that's great. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a mechanism for those superstars to, um, in a few short years, like get a research program up and running and, and run with it. And that's great. Um, there are some thoughts of like moving the PhD earlier in the medical training. And that to me just seems like people will be out of the lab for longer. That doesn't yeah, that's benefit anybody. You're less clinically informed. That doesn't benefit anybody. Um, Let me ask you a question about, about the PhD side that I've always struggled with this one. Um, you spend a lot of time physically doing things during your PhD from cell culture, pipetting to- We move small volumes of liquid from tube to tube <laughs> and, then go home, and then remember to put them in the right fridge or freezer and then go home. That's like a lot of what we do. That's a lot of what you do. Yeah. That's my impression as well. Okay. And then ultimately when you're the PI of lab, especially the real, you know, we were talking about the PIs, you know, the yeah. real, the real players in the game. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they, they haven't, the only liquid there to go near is coffee. They are not around any liquid. <laughs> okay. So my question is, um, you know, obviously to some degree, um, it helps to do the menial tasks to understand the big picture to some degree. You can overdo it. I mean, I've, you can, same with being a doctor, you could have doctors do all the phlebotomy on the floor, but yeah. they're going to miss out on some other parts of medical training. Right. So my question to you is, is that a place that we're striking the wrong balance? Like could a PhD- the graduate, graduate scientific training at large, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think every graduate student would say yes. And then we would defend our own experiences by saying there's so 
much technical nuance that like you can't advise people on the point on those details if you don't actually and supervise those people if you haven't had to do the struggle yourself like no attending is saying that they need to be able to supervise the like subclavian iv that gets like the home that gets placed in their uh, bmt patient um and thus it like the experience of doing it is worthwhile and thus the fact is that they don't need to learn to place homes. Um, whereas in science, I mean, if we're still going to continue this sort of apprenticeship graduate student type model where the PI, the graduate student can go to the PI and say, yes. I'm doing this PCR, it's not working. Can you help me troubleshoot it? Yes. The PI is going to be like, what's a PCR? You know, like they, they don't know how to troubleshoot it at all. Um, I, I mean, like my dad tells the story of, um, he's a, a PI at the NIH of a trainee who, didn't have any medical scientific background in the past. This was in like the late eighties, early nineties, who was putting each of the drop of liquids needed for a PCR reaction on a different spot on the side of the PCR tube <laughs> and not like putting them all at the bottom. And they were troubleshooting this PCR for weeks. And it's just like the person didn't realize that the machine and the tube didn't get the liquids to mix. And he wouldn't have thought like, why didn't you put them all together? You know? And so unless you literally know, like, Oh, well, those are polypropylene tubes and those don't work for this assay. Oh, those are like coated plates. You have to use uncoated plates to get this type of cell to grow happily. Like there's so many technical things that it's hard to imagine dropping a lot of what we ask grad students to do. I see. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. But you know what we don't learn to do? What? Is be a PI. Yes. You don't learn to be a PI. Don't flip it around. Right. The, grants. The downside to gaining this technical knowledge is that it's very patchy as to whether a, someone who graduates PhD could successfully be a PI without a postdoc. Right. Now, that was more common decades ago for a variety of scientific and financial reasons. But, you know, a lot of people, I know a number of people who are now junior faculty say, I did not really learn how to write grants, review grants, review manuscripts, and mentor. And so I think what the point you're making is not is a, a lot of a grad student's time is spent up spent doing menial small labor in lab yeah and it's that can be valuable but it can also happen at the expense of bigger picture skills that need to be learned let um, me ask you this so i, I guess I, I i think you're putting it very nicely and now you make me think of something i think about a lot and um but i i don't know about it from your perspective a lab yeah. person from my perspective as a policy person i think um I can teach people a lot of things. Uh, I can teach people how to, uh, you know, how to build a data spreadsheet and why some things look better than others. And I think to some degree, that's like it, it, you. It's so funny. For a while, I had a, you know, I, it's such a tangent. But um, for job interviews for certain research positions when I was in Oregon, I don't like to do the interview because I believe it has poor predictive value. So I like to give people a task and let them take it home and do it, and and I judge them based on the task. And I blind myself and a third party. You would imagine I do something like this. So the task was building this spreadsheet, and they had very little instruction for how it should look aesthetically. Um, you, it will blow you away that when you give some task like this to people, that me and a second person coding independently, we agree with astonishing accuracy who's you know, presentation of the data is the best, you know, it just, it, it, it's amazing. So, so I mean, I can, you know, I can teach that I can teach um, different statistical methods when you think about it, you know, and, and how to write the paper and, and please the reviewers and get it. Okay. But the truck, but the thing, I think the most important thing, somebody who um, works with me should learn 
that I'm not sure I can teach. I don't know how to do it, um, but I think it is the most important thing is how do you decide in the universe of questions what questions to spend your time on? Um, and uh, in policy, because it if it's, you know, it has to be topical, but uh, if it's too topical, you'll be scooped. It has to be something that people are interested in. But again, if too many people are interested in, you're going to be scooped. You have to know um, as you think about questions all the time, what data is available to you that you can answer the questions with. And so sometimes people come to me and they're like, oh, we should look at blah, blah, blah. And I say, yeah, we should. Um, but uh, <laughs> there's no way to get that data. You're going to have, you know, so you can't look at it. Um, uh, but you could ask this question where you can get the data and it, it gets at it. Um, so my question to you as a lab person is how much of being a PI is that process, the cognitive process of deciding what questions to tackle, when to tackle them, and why? Not necessarily yeah. the nuts and bolts of writing, and how, but but or, uh, is that is that analogous in your line of work? No, it, it's a it's a perfect analogy because one thing that even I have trouble with. I mean, I was in the PhD lab for four years and change, and then I did re med school and residency and a first year fellowship. But I was out of lab for five years, longer than I was in the lab. Now I'm coming back last year, this past year, to start my postdoc having not by pet for five years, science is getting technically more complicated every year. I mean, it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce a nature paper. I mean, with 20 yes. authors, I mean, it's a different beast than it was decades ago. And I'm, I, I, yes, I know that every year this argument can be made because it's like gradually getting worse and worse and worse, but the, um, the technical details of what is good and in interesting science that is growing exponentially. And that often takes up brain power that better could be better spent on reading and thinking and asking better questions. Right. And instead not outsourcing things so much, but having more things that are cores, so to speak, like, like right now, for instance, I mean, I have a bias that I'm at a large academic center with a federally funded genome center. But like if somebody on campus wants to like take their mouse tumor and do the whole exome sequencing of it, yes. like you make DNA, you pay somebody like at a core a few hundred bucks to do it and they give you your reads back and then you do the analysis. Yes. You're not by individual sample ma making a whole exome library over and over and over again. Yes. Um, so there are things that are very efficiently outsourced like that, yes. but it is. But there is a disconnect between how training happens, how the institution is structured, and and whether those things are, whether that vision is done coherently. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's, to your point though, like there is not a great schema of learn, learning to ask questions and learning to, to probe. And so COVID has, I think, been really hard for grad students more than a lot of other people in science because PIs can work from home. People are trying to, spread their work out. I mean, the grad students I know are like looking for senior people to ask things of. Right. Um, I mean, I think, you know, beggars, like it, it can't complain about, you know, being a grad student. There are people that have it infinitely worse. So I'm not, I don't want any uh, tears here, but um, it's made me realize how not having those pop around the corner casual questions. Can you look at this real quick? I'm in the middle of this thing. What should I do right here? Or, hey, I was just reading this paper. Can I shoot the shit with you for a second and, right. and, and ask this big picture right, question? That's, right. That can happen right now with all right. the distance. That's a good point. I mean, I think um, it's, you know, I, I don't know where to start. I mean, there, you know, I, I think that that's a, that's a good point to put your finger on for where it's been super disruptive. And, and um, 
it's, it's, we can down, I mean, you made the good point. A lot of people suffering, but the point I want to make is that these people who are doing this work, they're under a lot of stress. They were under stress when things are working like a well-oiled machine. And when things are difficult, when you're talking about uh, a pipeline that's as leaky as it is, I think they're going to be a lot of stress. And so I, I, my, I, I'm sympathetic. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think the, in like eight to 10 years time, I mean, I, I don't know if people will think about it this way because there are much bigger problems to worry about, but I would wonder if we did the same sort of think about, and we did an analysis of how MSTP and graduate student outcomes looked in the context of COVID, what was the impact? Because, you know, I have a lot of friends from college, actually I have fewer scientific friends and medical friends than non. And so my, my lawyer friends from college wonder why we picked this career and they wonder why is it so stressful? You're just moving liquid around in tubes all day. And the thing I tell them is science is like the worst example of where you can put in hours of effort and then the laser on one machine burns out while you're analyzing your sample and your month of work is thrown away. Uh, um, th there aren't that many other things. I mean, you know, writing a book, someone uh, writes you a print a book, copy. Yeah. You know, like, I, I knew a, a graduate student in immunology whose experiments were to breed mice, then a few weeks after the mice were born, take them down and take a certain subset of cells out of that mouse and put them into another mouse. And then you wait a few months and then you take down those mice and then put their cells into a dish. And then you grow them for a few weeks and then you take them out and put them back into a third mouse. And it's a very appropriate question that they're asking. But if the person in lab accidentally spills the bucket that has the little gold pieces of metal that you need to run the assay, all of that effort is thrown away. Yeah. All of it's thrown away. And the people that we select for, for MSTP cannot handle that. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we are used to such being such high achievers that yes. the, the fail, that sort of utter failure of just like literally taking a week's work and just like pushing it into the trash can drives us insane. And I think that is one of the things that actually is driving, would drive people away from science out the other end where, you know, and, and I mean this as, um, no, I mean, professionally, I mean yeah. the next statement as professionally as possible that sometimes in medicine, things don't go right for your patient, even though you made the right decision and you would make the same decision again. And so your you patient comfortable with that. Yeah. Good or bad outcome doesn't mean that your blood, sweat, and tears were worthless yeah. in medicine. David, you I mean, I have to tell you that of all the things about the laboratory that uh, repelled me, um, the, the, that is exactly it, which is that massive amounts of labor and yeah. absolute uncertainty, high rates of failure, things don't even go to completion. Um, and for somebody who is more geared towards faster feedback for myself, yeah. um, I found it untenable. But let me add, I mean, what you're saying makes me think of a broader philosophical question that, you know, some people have picked with me, which is that um, in a way, the way we're choosing doctors writ large, all doctors, um, and high rates of burnout and high rates of depression, high rates of, you know, wanting to go part-time and all these things that we're facing, um, we're picking them differently than when we picked them 50 years ago. Because 50 years ago, we picked people who, um, the CV arms race wasn't the same, yeah. you know, and, and the people you pick, they might've been the, the, in the summer before med school, they might've flipped burgers at a burger joint. Um, when yeah, I, I worked at the NIH doing cryo electron microscopy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, no, you're the opposite. I, I worked at a Kroger uh, <laughs> pushing the shopping carts, um, which is still the hardest, still the job of I've ever had that taught me uh, that I'm that I'm lucky to have this job. But but I mean, the point is the point is real, which is like, you know, high achievers and high achievers with a lot on your CV. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing has been, um, you know, built into your into your life. Um, and then it's hard, I think, to be a high achiever and then to take care of people and see many of them die despite your best efforts. And I think it's very hard for people to separate, I think, um, that like you, you know, um, like all doctors, when things don't go the way I want it to go, I agonize about it um, and like wakes me up from sleep. And I talk to a lot of people and I look through charts and I do a lot of stuff. But you won't necessarily also have to move your family to another city for a different job than you were planning a few months ago. It's different. Oh, That's the thing, medical. right? Yes. Yeah, like in medical, in the medical context. Um, As opposed to which? Opposed to science. I mean, if yeah, you exactly. don't publish your paper by a deadline, you could lose nice. your visa. I, I mean, that's the international grad students, international postdocs. I mean, that's what they're facing. They I mean, they, you have X number of years to not just do good science and ask good questions, but it's publish papers. I mean, it, I think PIs don't realize that trainees go around asking, how's your blood paper? How's your nature cell biology paper? We right. refer to the commodity by its target journal, right. not how's your project on gene X or right. mouse model, model right. Y. And so with that, deliverable mindset um science really messes with your head and you're and you're saying well you know if i don't get this out in a deadline then i mean my i, I won't be able to apply for the next job i won't be able to I, I might get fired i might uh lose my visa i mean those are just different this is a different calculus than people that go into certain other professions where there's laterality like you know you're a junior at one law yeah. firm you can move to another law firm even yeah. within the same city like that yeah. is highly likely to be possible for you yeah that's true um i guess okay so here's my solution and i want to know your solution for all the things we've been talking about my solution is the only solution is randomization so i would do it at like several levels i would randomize grant like you know junior faculty right now there's a few things you can spend hellish amounts of time writing these things. And I spent it, you know, 70 page, 80 page, 100 page plus proposals to do work uh, that, you know, I, I could probably convey to you better instead of reading that 100 pages by talking to you for seven minutes. I probably could do a better job. Um, uh, I saw somebody recently, there was like an article I was looking at and it said that we should have videos uh, where the person just explains what they want to do on video to make everyone's life easier. Okay, so the, and then, and of course, of this huge selection, uh, this pool, a few people get a lot of money. Um, or we could have like lotteries or modified lotteries, like above a certain threshold, we'll randomly give it out. Um, that's for how to fund researchers. And then I think for your proposal, you know, a couple of programs could bandy together and actually, if, you know, with the consent of the people, test it. Um, literally randomly assign them to um, go do PhD between second and third year or third and fourth year. And then follow them, you know, 10 years into their career to see differences in K awards and R awards and lab wor work. Um, I think that's answerable. Uh, but uh, but I wonder what you think. What it, I mean, it's also logistically. I think, um, I mean, defining what the problem is, is almost always the hardest and first step, right? Um, and I think as much as I, you know, individuals who I have as close friends who have gone into private practice after MSTP or have gone into a Sinners. not conducive to yeah. academic basic science research. And I love and respect those people. As far as the program goes, 
you know, it's a very select uh, few people that probably get together and really have the hard conversation of, are we achieving our goal of, and fill in the blank what the goal is? Um, because I don't know, I mean, I think if you ask most MSDPs, a one in four end up ending up in private practice rate is not what the point was, just honestly, it's not. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, whether you could really randomize to get power to analyze the difference in outcomes is, is hard, but it may be the best way forward. Um, what's what I wish, honestly, what happened first is just people try it, try try a few different things and just like do it for a few years. Uncontrolled phase two, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Pilot programs. I mean, Pilot, yeah. because we because part of it is I think people are afraid of unintended consequences, yeah. like. You move the PhD a year earlier. Does nobody ever do science again? Yes. Or you know, one of the dilemmas that happens right now is you know when you finish your PhD, it's not always in June on cycle to go back to the clinics. So what if you did your PhD between third and fourth year? Well, then how do you finish your PhD going into the residency application cycle? There are a lot of like secondary and tertiary effects that would have to be thought out. Um, I'm not opposed to programs randomizing, you know, Wash U has 20 to 25 MSTPs a year. So does Penn. Maybe, maybe random. Too many. <laughs> maybe offer a few slots for people to do things differently and see how those people pan out. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, and, and I guess one thing that we didn't state that we should state at the outset is, you know, we don't have an MDJD program like this. I mean, this is something that we all believe is different. That's why it's being funded different. That's why it's being curated different. Um, but one can imagine um, a lot of other combos. Um, yeah, I find, I, I mean, I, I found this conversation really interesting. Um, obviously, we're, I mean, I'm mostly on your wavelength um, through all the data that you put out. Um, I, I've looked at that data, I think a while back, and I think I reached a similar conclusion. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, the goal, the question is, what do we want to see? And I think what you want to see is you want to get people to go into the program, um, when they have committed in their heart that that's what they want to do. And having thus committed, you want them to stick with it at high rates, uh, at least to show return on investment from the societal payment. Yeah. yeah. So, so a few points we haven't mentioned is okay. one, you know, what is the impact of how residencies and fellowships are structured on whether somebody who intended have want to go to, into lab actually ends up going into lab? Yeah. So, I mean, it's so variable that it's hard to, you know, different subspecialties make it a lot harder. And it's not the MSTP's fault per se. It might be that specialty makes it very hard to be trained in a way to start a, an R01 funded lab. So we have, there's this PSTP parallel to MSTP, which is not a NIGMS funded situation in the same way MSTP is. But in essence, folks like myself can do two years of medicine residency and four years of HEMONC fellowship. And I'm only going to actually be single boarded in HEMONC where that first year of fellowship is 100% clinical. And then for three years, I do a single day of clinical week and then I'm in the lab the rest of the time. So that's my postdoc right there. Maybe yes. I take another year as an instructor. Yes. That has a high success rate yes. I mean, with very small sample size of getting people into that position. I mean, we do that in rheumatology here, cardiology, all the medicine subspecialties here and a num at a number of the other sort of top 20-ish programs. Around right. Around different residencies do or don't offer that. I mean, pathology is probably the extreme even beyond medicine where there are places where 
you'll come into path residency, do really just a single year of clinical work and then dabble in clinical work in the next three or four years and essentially do a residency postdoc with the anticipation that you actually don't do clinical service. Probably you're just a board eligible pathologist with a really high powered lab. And that's a little bit of a West coast slant and maybe a Harvard slant to those types of routes. Um, but most of the procedural subspecialties don't provide, they don't provide a, a truly high likelihood route to be a lab PI, admittedly. So how, how you share the, how you, how you distribute the blame um, for our private practice percentages, et cetera, um, is, a, is an open-ended question as well. Yeah, I guess I'll say my only, my one pet peeve about PTSP, my one pet peeve is I, don't want to don't want to name names, but when um, if a trainee comes to clinic and they only want to learn about one disease, which is what they want to run the lab in, I get irritated because I want I want I like I want people to learn all the diseases. But obviously, you know, maybe that doesn't make sense. That's just my pet peeve. Um, all right, David, our time is up. David Rustler, Germain, this is a great discussion. Um, I had one last point. Okay, go for so, it. So it's application season. And so people ah, yes. are currently getting their acceptances to med school and MD PhD. And I, I think I'd, I'd kick myself after this if I didn't say that for everyone who listened, who is thinking about going to an MD PhD program, make the decision of whether it's right or wrong for you, largely irrespective of what we've discussed today. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think. Not a recommendation to or to not do it. You should know these factors. Uh-huh. And I think by and large, most MSP students don't regret doing it. But I also think applicants should have a more realistic understanding of what their future career would probably look like. It is not 90% of people are 80-20 and have R01s. You right. have to understand that you're doing this potentially with the with the likelihood of saying, oh, I want to be a private practice behind, and that's fine. Like those th- that is not uncommon and you should do the MD PhD whether or not you think that is what you're going to end up doing. That's good advice. Uh, I think they should also reach out to you for questions. Uh, you're, you're around, they'll track you down. Yeah. Ask, ask, ask people questions, ask some residents and fellows about their experiences Uh and how it, how it shaped them. David Russell Germain, it's been a real pleasure. We'll, we'll talk again soon on a different topic. Oh yeah. It was awesome. Good Good to see you. Good to see you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.